0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to a very exciting episode. In this first of a two-part series, we're looking at floods and the increasing risk of climate change. We're going to learn how communities can become more financially resilient in the face of worsening floods. This series is being sponsored by the Wharton Risk Center at the University of Pennsylvania with generous support from the Delaware Valley Regional Planning Commission through the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's Coastal Zone Management Program. Returning to the podcast is Dr. Carolyn Kuski of the Wharton Risk Center, who gives us some context to what this two-part series is all about. Then joining me is John Miller of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, Reese May, the Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at SBP, and finally, Julia Rockwell, the Manager of the Adaptation Program for the City of Philadelphia's Water Department. We're going to learn a lot about flooding with a special emphasis on the Mid-Atlantic region, and we'll hear a lot from the City of Brotherly Love, Philadelphia. I hope you enjoyed this special series. I'm very excited to be sharing it with you. Now, let's join Dr. Kuski to give us some more background on these episodes. Adapters. Joining me is Dr. Carolyn Kuski. Carolyn is the Executive Director at the Warden Risk Management and Decision Processes Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, Carolyn. Welcome back to the podcast.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: All right. So this is the first episode in a two-part series that I'm doing with you. So give us a little background. What are we doing with this podcast series?
1: Yeah, our center has been looking at how to improve people's financial recovery from floods. And this project is supported by the Delaware Valley Regional Planning Commission through the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's Coastal Zone Management Program. So in this, we've been focused a lot on the coastal zone areas of our home state here in Pennsylvania. But what we're finding and the tools that we're exploring in this project really have national application. And so that's why I'm excited to be here today to talk to you and to talk to other adopters.
0: Well, we've worked before on the podcast, and I was very excited to get you back on. So, And the experts that you're bringing on, it's very exciting. So let's start with what happens after someone experiences a flood event. You've talked about floods as a financial shock. And so what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, disasters can really be this period that causes a lot of economic pain for households. So financial shocks are times when the expenditures, the things you have to pay for, increase, and or your income is also going down. And that can be the case for a serious flood event. Floods cause a range of damages. There's a lot of focus on the property damage, and that's probably what most people think of first. And that can be thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars if we're talking about something, you know, like very serious deep flooding or coastal storm surge or something like that. But beyond the need to repair a damaged home and replace damaged contents, you know, everything inside the house might also get damaged. You might have to remediate mold. Big floods can also cause a range of other costs that people might not be anticipating. So things like if you have to evacuate in advance of them, then you have to pay for transportation and lodging and food. It's possible you get a lot of debris and junk in your yard that you have to clean up. There could be health costs, especially if you end up living with mold that can, you know, that's not good for people's health. People's business might be interrupted. They might not be able to work. So all these things add up and it turns out that flood events can be really costly for people. And we also know that those impacts are not born equally. Lower income households and communities have been shown now in lots of research to be disproportionately impacted by serious disaster events. And there's a number of components to that. They might be in less safe areas to begin with, or in construction that wasn't built to withstand floods. They might face challenges in access to information for preparedness, for recovery, and then they often lack those financial options to recover. And that's the piece we've been focusing on.
0: Okay. So let's talk about that affordability. You have these lower income households, And they're not likely going to have much in the way of savings. So what are some of the other government aids or funding sources that might be available to them?
1: Yeah, so I like to think that there's sort of four big buckets of resources that people, households might be able to draw on after a disaster, like a big flood event. And that one you mentioned savings is the first one, right? If you have money in the bank you can use that to fund your repair and rebuilding. But we know that most people don't have enough liquid savings in order to cover the thousands of dollars that they might need to. And also it's worth saying that even if people do have some savings, if you have to deplete everything you've been saving for retirement or for education, to rebuild, you know, you might've made your home safer, but you're still in a really worse off financial position after a flood event. So there's savings, which might not be available for everyone. Then the first line of defense actually for victims of a flood in the US is loans. And so you could take out credit and, you know, after big disasters that might be available, there might be federal disaster loans available, but those have to be repaid. Taking on debt is not always easy. And we also know that often the folks who most need help are locked out of access to credit because they don't have the debt to income or credit score requirements to qualify for these loans. So if you don't have savings, if you don't have a loan, you know, then there's assistance from other sources and people might turn to their friends and family. In a flood event, you know, entire communities are hit. So if you live near, you know, your social network, they're also going to be struggling. There's potentially disaster aid, but it turns out that the federal assistance is really only made available after really big Disasters. It requires a federal disaster declaration that authorizes the program to households within FEMA. And so lots of sort of smaller scale localized flooding events like Philly just experienced the other day, actually, don't get federal disaster aid. And also it's worth saying that even when the federal resources are made available from really big events, they take so long to get to people. I mean, we're talking months and months. So basically what this boils down to is you might not have savings or access to credit. You don't get aid. And so that leaves insurance. And so that's why we talk so much about the importance of insurance is so that you can have those financial resources. So that's why it's harder for low-income households and communities. They might not have enough savings. They don't get access to credit. They can't count on federal aid. And so insurance is so important. And yet they're also the folks who struggle the most with affording insurance in the first place.
0: Okay, so there's four different ways that low-income people are struggling to respond to a flooding event. So what are their options?
1: Yeah, it can be really tough, right? Without access to sufficient financial resources, a serious flood can actually be a tipping point into deeper poverty. And we see that people will turn to coping measures that also have long-term consequences. So we talked about, you know, like if you exhaust all your savings, that has negative implications for households down the line. Maybe they have to reduce spending on other important things like healthcare in order to use the money to repair their home, maybe they have to turn to predatory lenders or drive up their credit card debt. Research has found that things like delinquencies and bankruptcies are much more likely for households that are financially constrained and in communities of color after a disaster. So this is why we wanted to kind of focus on this topic a lot because financial resilience, having that money needed to get back on your feet after a big flood, I think is really foundational to all the other aspects of recovery.
0: Okay, so this can be a driver for people to go into deeper poverty because they don't have access to these things. Can you even see, is the data showing that storms and dealing with flooding and all these disasters are a driver of income inequality?
1: Yeah, we also see that... you know, there's two parts to that question. The first is that there's inequities in exposure to flood risk. And so we see often that lower income communities and communities of color might be at higher risk, might not be in as safe areas. And then also that the sort of discrepancies in the equity with which people have access to financial resources further exacerbates income inequality. So income inequality is already at sort of record high levels in the US and disasters can be a force that makes it even worse.
0: Okay, Carolyn, you've teed us up really nicely what this whole episode is going to be about now we're going to be talking to all these various experts so who are we talking to and what are some of the subjects that we're going to be digging into
1: Yeah, there's some great folks coming up. And we're going to be hearing from Reese May. He's the chief innovation officer at SBP. SBP is a disaster recovery NGO. And he's been on the ground in the aftermath of many of the serious flood and storm events that have happened around the U.S. and can share with us what he's learned about the struggles people have with their recovery. We're going to hear from John Miller from FEMA, who can talk to us about some of the programs that FEMA runs after a disaster and how the federal government can assist or not, as the case may be, as we've been talking about a little bit. We're going to hear from Julia Rockwell. She's the Climate Change Adaptation Program Manager at the Philadelphia Water Department. And she's been working on implementing a department-wide climate adaptation strategy. And part of that is about increasing water-related extremes. So she can talk to us about how a city is actually going about making some of these changes and what they're struggling with day-to-day.
0: That sounds great. I'm really looking forward to these conversations. You've recruited some really top-notch people and I'm going to get to learn a lot of different things. Okay. So we're going to go talk about flooding and we're 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 going to talk about risk management. And thanks again, Carolyn, for coming on and kicking this off.
1: Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to hear it too.
0: Hey, Adapters, welcome back. Joining me is Reese May. Reese is the Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at SBP, a social impact organization focused on disaster preparedness and recovery. Hi, Reese. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, Doug. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Can we start off with you just briefly telling us about SBP and what you do there?
2: Sure. So SBP is a nonprofit disaster recovery and preparedness organization that started in New Orleans after Katrina. We began just rebuilding homes for low and moderate income families to own their homes and owned them before the storm. They were not able to afford market rate contractors and they desperately wanted to stay in their homes. We began that important work in St. Bernard Parish as the St. Bernard Project, and we later grew to disaster-impacted communities that were affected by events more recent than Katrina. And as our organization grew and we began to rebuild homes for thousands of families in communities all across the country, we realized that while the rebuilding work is important and getting home means everything for the seven or 800 families we rebuild for each year, it sort of pales in comparison to the effects of disaster that are seen by millions of people in communities all across the country. And, Sort of with the witness we had from the many communities we were operating in, we started to ask ourselves, what should we do with all this information about the lived experience of communities before and after large scale natural disasters? And so over the years, we've worked to take that experience and feed it back to every level of the system that could produce better outcomes before and after disasters for low and moderate income communities. What are some of
0: the challenges that SBP sees on the ground with recovery from floods?
2: It's a great question. You know, flood is one of the most common and the most costly disasters that affect American communities each year. Almost every disaster involves some type of flooding, and it's been pretty well covered. But it's worth saying here again that the way we know flood risk in America, or the way we've known it historically, has been through special flood hazard areas or flood insurance rate maps that are produced by FEMA. And we've seen Uh, SPP and tons of other organizations that serve disaster impacted communities have seen the ways in which these maps and these flood zones simply are not effectively communicating risk. So if you look to areas like, say, the greater Houston area, surrounding areas affected by Hurricane Harvey, as much as 80% of the homes affected by those floods were not in mandatory purchase zones. And so a lot of folks weren't required to have flood insurance and so didn't whenever they were affected by these natural disasters. And the, the outcomes are, it's really difficult to overstate how different the outcome is for a family who had flood insurance versus one who didn't. You know, after Hurricane Harvey, the average flood insurance payout was over $100,000 While the average FEMA award was less than $5,000. And so it's really one of the most important protective mechanisms there is, but far too few people know about it. And part of that is because the federal government isn't effectively communicating that risk to areas outside these quote unquote flood zones.
0: Just mentioned working with, let's say, the, the city of Houston or working in these larger areas. But can you give an example or two of maybe working at just that micro scale, be it a family or individuals? What's that experience like?
2: Sure. I mean, we've rebuilt for hundreds of families in Houston. And so when you meet a couple of brothers who have inherited the home that their mother purchased 50 years ago, it's the only home that family's ever known. One of the brothers lives there now and plans to raise his family there. They're not in a special flood hazard area. They're not in a 100-year flood zone, as they call it, Though we see those events occurring with increasing frequency far more often than once every 100 years. And that's really part of the problem is the language that we're using to describe risk. This 100 and 500-year floodplain refers to the probabilistic and mathematical model language. But the lay reader tends to think, oh, well, this won't happen for 100 years. And that can really impact people's uh, decisions to purchase insurance or not purchase insurance. But where we see it make the most impact is exactly like that family I'm describing. So the low-income African-American family, the mother has achieved the American dream of home ownership, and she has passed that generational asset and the wealth that comes along with it down to her sons. They are not required to have flood insurance in this area. Disaster comes along and floods the home. This is the single most valuable asset that that family owns. And now all of its value has been taken away. Without insurance, they're not going to be able to restore equity to the asset, which means they'll probably have to sell it at pennies on the dollar versus what it was worth. And right there in that moment, we've sort of lost an opportunity to transfer generational wealth. And I think what SBP funds most concerning is when you move up from the micro scale of individual families like that to the macro scale and the ways that Housing development in America has a deeply racist history. We know that many low income communities and communities of color have been forced in to areas that are at greater risk. And now as data and technology advance and we know more about risk than we've ever known before, we know where these risky areas are. We know that they're at an increased risk through no fault of their own. And it's time now to figure out what it is we'll do about that.
0: So that's a great pivot to the next question, At this idea of getting pennies on the dollar. So what are some solutions to improve financial recovery after these sorts of events?
2: I mean, the number one thing that people can do is before events, and that's buy flood insurance. As I mentioned earlier, I think it's important to note that the traditional predictors of risk and the indicators that tell you whether or not you should be afraid of flooding in your area are simply not accurate. And there are more advanced and better tools that are out there in the marketplace now than what you can expect to get from the federal government. And I'd refer to you things like Flood Factor and the First Street Foundation and the important work of Wharton and other institutes that are really bringing these risk surfaces to light in ways that are more actionable for communities. After disasters, it's really tricky. Those without insurance will wait on federal assistance, and that comes through FEMA and through HUD. But honestly, the assistance that comes through FEMA is not enough assistance to make a full recovery. And what folks can expect from HUD is at least three years of delay until CDBGDR funds are actually available to conduct long-term rebuilding and repairs to housing in affected areas. And you know, Doug, as an example, I'd, I'd hold out Lake Charles, Louisiana, which was impacted by Hurricanes Laura, Delta, Zeta, a deep freeze, February, and then more flooding in May. They get to receive a congressional allocation for supplemental assistance. Nor has any community that was affected by disasters in 2020. So, I, you know, from SBP's perspective, before disaster, it's really about focusing on individuals and helping them better understand, make decisions that reduce their risk. Things like buy flood insurance. You know, know more about mitigation activities and techniques you can do to your home to. Uh, help it withstand events that you might suffer after disaster. We really have to take a hard look at what the government is and is not providing to disaster survivors. You know, the, the FEMA national advisory council study in 2020 showed the pernicious effects of federal investment after recovery that for affluent white communities Net worth tends to increase over the period of disaster recovery when FEMA funds make it to communities and in communities of color and low income communities. It's just the opposite. Over the same period of time, net worth is reduced across those families. And, And I think that's something that we really have to take a look at. We talk a really big game about wanting to build back better and build back smarter and build back faster and deliver what families need. But I I really think we have to ask ourselves, are we delivering the assistance that people need and are we delivering it quickly enough? And then frankly, when we deliver it, are we bound to rebuild something that positions vulnerable people against future suffering? or Are we bound to rebuild the structures that were already there? And I think all too often from a policy perspective, we're bound to rebuild the things that were there, not the better things that could be there.
0: It seems the idea of changing federal flooding policy is just this ongoing thing. But SBP, you guys have some specific policy recommendations you'd like to see changed, right?
2: We do. Yeah. Um, Some with FEMA and some with HUD and those largely related to aid after disasters. Even before disaster, though, what we'd like to see is a more robust use of all the data and technology and tools that are currently available. Taking nothing away from the the fine Americans who work at FEMA, some of the hardest working people I've, I've ever met. FEMA's primary method for marketing flood insurance is to wait until a community is hit by flood and then buy up a lot of ad space, capitalizing on the attentiveness and awareness that this community will have since a disaster just occurred there. But with all of this crazy information down to parcel levels and the ability to use predictive risk analytics to model exactly what might happen if these conditions occurred versus those, we think it's possible to know a whole lot more about risk than what FEMA currently knows and to use that to communicate in ways that are far more effective than simply buying media time after disasters occur. And so SPP is going to be piloting that communication framework in a couple of communities this year using on-the-ground grassroots network communications through other non-governmental organizations and network associations. We'll communicate through paid and traditional and earned media opportunities, then also do a big blowout in a digital way as well, focusing on low- and moderate-income census tract areas with high risk vulnerability to flood, where flood insurance really should be purchased. And we're going to try and communicate that in a bunch of different and unique and interesting ways, and then take that information, capture what worked, you know, line out what didn't, and get ready to share it in more communities in the future.
0: Okay. So you have a background in AmeriCorps, and I don't think a lot of people appreciate the role that AmeriCorps has in disaster recovery. And even with your organization, could you give a little bit of background on that?
2: Definitely. So AmeriCorps is a really, it's its an amazing program. It's a lot like a Peace Corps, but they work on domestic issues. And essentially, the the Corporation for National and Community Service can provide uh, match funding to organizations that wish to utilize AmeriCorps members. When I got out of the United States Marine Corps, I went off to graduate school for a year and took a break and decided I'd do an AmeriCorps term at SPP. I got to work as a construction coordinator helping to implement the Toyota production system over a single family scattered site home redevelopment project in South Louisiana with SBP. Our AmeriCorps members serve on the front lines of disaster-impacted communities everywhere that SBP operates, and I think it's one of the best-kept secrets and most important federal programs that's out there, and communities that are at risk of disaster or communities that have been impacted by them should surely learn more about SBP, but absolutely learn more about AmeriCorps. It's an incredible, incredible government program and one that really selects for the very best of what our country has to offer. They're often young people. Who finished a college degree and they want to take between one and three years to give back to their community simply to serve. SBP utilizes a couple hundred AmeriCorps members each year, but they do far more and far more interesting work all around the country in programs besides SBP. So I'd encourage listeners to learn more.
0: When you work with communities on disaster recovery, people are probably thinking very immediate things. You know, they've just gone through this trauma. But does the issue of climate change and adapting to it? ever come up into these conversations?
2: Yeah, yes. I mean, it's maybe not as directly as you're imagining. You know, are people, are survivors scratching their heads and saying, am I a victim of climate change? Often not. Right. People feel they're victims of freak events. Lots of folks know what part of the world they live in. For many, this isn't their first disaster, but their 20th or 30th. And, And so it's not always quite so on the nose as, What I'm experiencing now makes me a victim of of the climate crisis or of the climate change. But surely people are aware of it. You see it when, you know, individual families make decisions not to rebuild and to leave home or uh, to leave homes and, and communities for higher ground or less risky areas. I think you'll start to see it in decision-making among state and local elected officials for the purposes of broader investment in their communities. You'll have to give just a more realistic interpretation of the risks your community faces. So I do think that communities are out there grappling with it, though perhaps not you know, in quite such plain language.
0: And do you find personally, as you do your job, do you hear more about the concepts like managed retreat? And do you you see this being integrated into the type of work that you're doing?
2: I do hear a lot of concepts like managed retreat. And listen, floodplain management in America is serious business. I have a colleague who was appointed by Governor Haley to lead the recovery effort in South Carolina for several years. And he now serves as a senior government advisor for SBP. But He's fond of saying that there are only two kinds of people who live in the floodplain, those who can afford it and those who cannot. Hmm. And so when we think about managed retreat and when we think about how to reduce risk, you know, closing the coverage gap is one way, but there are some places where it's clear managed retreat is the answer. And I think, for that, I'm really encouraged about the level of federal investment that's been indicated and that we're starting to see flow to you know, flood mitigation programs and, and FEMA's HMGP and BRIC funding. I believe that uh, state and local governments will use a lot of that money to look for areas that really, you know, high areas of repetitive loss where there's a ton of suffering that could be prevented if only we figure out a way to conduct a transaction and replace value and property with like value and property, but prevent folks from suffering in the same ways over and over and over again. And, and you know, it's a, del- a delicate balance to strike between people's concept of home and the land that they're tied to and the way, you know, history affects that and affects our ability to kind of live with the decisions we make about where we live and where we won't live. But surely SBP has seen communities and some suffer repeatedly you know, in, a, in a brief period of time in places like San Marcos, Texas or Lake Charles, Louisiana, where there are lots of you know, repetitive disasters. We think that insurance is really, really important stuff, but we've got to be thinking about this all the time because there are ways to mitigate, even in so much as you know, conducting a simple home inventory uh, at your house. So that if you have to file an insurance claim, you can file one that's stronger and based on photographic evidence and serial numbers or video recordings of the items that you actually lost, right? For these brothers who own their mother's home in Houston, one of the top things on their list has got to be ensuring that the deed has their name on it and that it's in a protected place in case they have to bug out of the house in the event of a future flood. Proving that you own the home and ensuring that your titles are up to date after a succession or the passing of an relative can be a material impediment to you accessing the assistance you need after disasters. And I'll tell you, if there's one thing I've learned in the 10 plus years of doing this work, that when you you look at recovery challenges, right, for for the affluent, those of us who are fortunate enough to have resources, every challenge means that recovery is going to become a little more expensive or maybe take a little bit longer. But for low and moderate income families and, and the working poor, every challenge makes recovery a little less possible. And that, I think, is something that's worthy of far more consideration than it's getting. And and that if we were to better represent the suffering of people in New Orleans and Houston, the panhandle of Florida and coastal North Carolina and tons of other communities that we've never even heard about, if you hold that up and you say, this is what it looks like if we don't address it, we might be more effective at holding the attention of policymakers and leaders whose responsibility it is to address it.
0: Okay, Reese. it's been great chatting with you. You guys are doing some really amazing work, and thanks for coming on the podcast.
2: Hey, Doug, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for the opportunity.
0: Hey, Adapters, welcome back. Joining me is John Miller. John works for FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. John works with FEMA Region 2 assigned to the state of New Jersey to assist with flood, climate change, and natural hazard resiliency and adaptation. Hi, John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Doug. Oh, no, it's a treat to have you on. Someone from FEMA, you guys are doing great work. And on that note, could you just more briefly describe what FEMA is generally responsible for?
3: Yeah, so FEMA is responsible for responding to disasters and getting communities prepared for disasters and helping them recover from disasters. So it is a multi-agency effort.
0: I want to just kind of drill down into something specific here. Can you talk about what happens after a flood for the average household?
3: Yeah, so it is a big event when someone gets flooded. There is often, you know, just dealing with your personal belongings, getting back to the house can be difficult with debris in the streets. And what's really important is someone gets in there and, and really, you know, mucks the house out, it, it, removing that mud that comes in with the flood water, removing drywall that's saturated from the flood, airing the house out, you know, bringing fans in because you don't want mold to grow and uh, getting that house dry.
0: How long does it generally take to receive federal aid in these situations where the people actually need that federal aid?
3: You know, it can happen in weeks. What FEMA has to do is, again, mobilize to the affected area. There are centers set up to take in people and to, you know, to basically to handle their information and go through that process. I think we need to think about it's really states and locals are there first. And they are the ones that are really attending to the survivors of a disaster. The first, the FEMA is coming in to assist that process if there
0: are these delays, what's really creating those delays? I know FEMA wants to help people as soon as possible, but I guess there's maybe there's particular checklists that you have to get through. What, why is there that delay?
3: It's sometimes a proof of eligibility. So people are, there are certain documents and certain information that is needed that the homeowner will provide FEMA. So it would be, again, you know, proof of ownership and and different documents such as that.
0: It's my understanding there's no federal aid available after just a heavy rainfall flooding event. Is
3: that true? True. In terms of, it sounds like the type of disaster you're speaking about would be more local and not trigger a presidential disaster declaration. However, if you are covered by flood insurance, you can make a claim on that type of event.
0: Not a federal claim, not any of the federal assistance that might be available.
3: Right. Basically, there are a number of events that don't cross the threshold. So there's a, a per capita or a population threshold that comes into play when a disaster is declared. And that's what triggers the various assistance programs. But having a an individual flood insurance policy, you can make that claim in the case of a of smaller event. Okay. Well, tell me a bit about the resilience work that you're doing at FEMA. Yeah. So things have really picked up at FEMA in terms of resiliency and adaptation. So we are looking at a number of programs that have been, additional funding has gone into them. There's the the BRIC program, the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program. And the president put another $500 million into that program. There's going to be a billion dollars in that program this year, 2021. And what the BRIC program does is it really looks at uh, neighborhood-scale type of mitigation, or as as your program title includes, adaptation. So, again, not using the word climate mitigation, using mitigation in terms of mitigating the risk of flooding and damage from flooding. So, the BRIC program will look at everything from electric grid issues to, again, flood issues, restoration It has also a built-in requirement now with the President's Justice 40 initiative that it needs to help disadvantaged communities. These could be urban or rural communities and that they should have a portion of the funding going to them. The other thing that's coming along is the, this was just announced that the COVID-19 funding that went to states and territories, 4% of that aid will go into the Hazard Mitigation Grant Program. And that's one that can really address non-structural, which is, you know, elevating a home or a voluntary buyout of a home. And it can also go into small structural projects. So that's another program that, you know, almost $3.5 billion is coming in, again, as a result of the COVID-19 spending.
0: Okay. When you think about a community being resilient to the impacts of climate change, it has to be the lower income people and even the upper income people who typically have flood insurance. And for those who can't afford flood insurance, as you're trying to make communities more resilient, how does that affordability issue come up with you guys?
3: And it does. Affordability is something that FEMA has looked at. The National Academies of Science have looked at it. And FEMA has run some analyses on affordability. They really looked at the National Flood Insurance Program and the census data in coming up with, you know, who is not being covered by flood insurance. And they've made, they've run some analyses and they've provided that to Congress. And we're expecting that, you know, Congress will be looking at this in its reform and reauthorization of the National Flood Insurance Program.
0: Well, I think it might actually be covered in those reports. But so FEMA is interested in this issue of equity, not just affordability, but equity means other things too, and that's a, a kind of a new focus for you guys too.
3: Yes, it is. So you know, again, there are underserved communities that have been unable to compete in in various programs, and with respect to flood insurance, unable to afford. Flood insurance and there have been efforts made in terms of, you know, previous bills in Congress to create a means tested affordability program. It's, I guess, likely that Congress will look at that again. And, you know, even the Wharton risk center has looked at teaming up affordability and mitigation and looking at, uh, you know, grants and loans that would not only help the homeowner or tenant you know, afford flood insurance, but look for the owner to reduce the exposure of that building and thus reducing the flood insurance premiums over time.
0: Well, everyone has an opinion on how you can improve federal aid programs, but at FEMA, what do you think we can do to improve some of the federal aid programs? Or what are the things that some of the things you're talking about internally?
3: Yeah, so I think with this Justice 40 with some of the equity considerations, we as FEMA are looking at how can we assist communities that don't have the capacity and the experience in qualifying for grant programs and that would be assistance not only to get a grant but also to administer the grant to manage the grant And that's important because, again, getting the project done, but also meeting all the requirements for reporting and closing out the grant. And there are, you know, there is effort that goes into those things. And some communities do not have the staffing to do those things.
0: So if people want to learn more about what you do and I guess what FEMA does, and I think that's very interesting, you're working on preparedness, adaptation, climate change. Where would you recommend they go to find more information?
3: Yeah, so FEMA.gov is, is your launch point for all these programs, whether you're looking for flood insurance information, whether you're looking for, you know, the mitigation grant programs. If you're looking for preparedness and how to prepare your family, and quite frankly, your neighborhood and your community for threats that exist, that's that's a good place to start. So it's easy to remember, fema.gov.
0: Okay, John, this has been a treat talking with you. I appreciate what you're doing there at FEMA, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Hey, Adapters, welcome back. Joining me is Julia Rockwell. Julia is the manager of the Climate Change Adaptation Program for the Philadelphia Water Department. Hi, Julia. Welcome to the podcast.
4: Hi, Doug. Thank you for having me.
0: All right. I'm very excited to hear all about the adaptation program there. And so let's just start there. What's your role in the program?
4: Yeah. So I manage our department's climate change adaptation program. We're tasked with identifying all of the climate-related risks that our utility will face. And our utility is what is known as a one-water utility, meaning we provide drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater services to the city of Philadelphia. And so in identifying climate-related risks, we are looking at all the potential vulnerabilities to all those different systems and the services we provide. And we basically try to identify the most effective and feasible adaptation strategies to really reduce those risks and ensure that we can continue to provide high levels of service.
0: So there aren't too many adaptation programs in cities across the United States. So how old is your program?
4: My program was actually started in 2014. So we've been around for, I guess that makes it about seven years. <laughs> and, and yeah, when we got started back in 2014, it really felt like adaptation was a relatively new field. So in getting the program started, I and my team did a lot of, of background research on kind of how we would want to tackle this massive issue of, of climate risks and adaptation. And over the years, we've seen a lot of other utilities kind of grow out their adaptation programs and strategies. So we're really kind of learning as we go and leaning largely upon our our peer network of, of other cities and utilities that are tackling many similar issues.
0: Well, that's fantastic. 2014, that's almost like your old timers. That is actually, you've been in the space for a while. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Okay,
2: let's,
0: let's talk about some fundamentals about just the city of Philadelphia. So in the work that you do, what's the geography like there in Philadelphia? Because obviously that weighs into what happens with the climate impacts.
4: Yeah, so Philadelphia is kind of a unique city in terms of where we're located geographically. We are at the bottom of the 13,000 square mile Delaware River watershed. So, obviously, we're concerned with what's happening in upstream communities and where flooding occurs in those upstream communities and how that impacts river flows that eventually make their way down to Philadelphia. We are also a city that is located on two tidal rivers, the Delaware River and the Schuylkill River. So, we're often not thought of as a coastal city, and we're definitely not as vulnerable or exposed as cities like Miami or Boston or New York, but because we're on these tidal rivers, we are experiencing the impacts of sea level rise and also storm surge. And then when it comes to climate change, Philadelphia is you know a highly urbanized city. So a lot of the impacts of urbanization and effects on the water cycle are being exacerbated by climate change. So we kind of have this compounding series of effects from urbanization and climate related risks that we're dealing with.
0: Could you talk a little bit more about, I don't think most people realize that Philadelphia does have some issues with, you know, being in a coastal zone. You mentioned rising seas and how does that manifest itself in, in the work that you're doing?
4: Yeah. So in Philadelphia, we're actually lucky enough to have an observed data record that goes back to the early 1900s that tracks Delaware River water elevations in Philadelphia. And we've seen about a foot of rise in sea levels in Philadelphia over that period of record. And that means several things for our city, and specifically from the water utility perspective. First is that we are vulnerable to inundation, so surface flooding is a big concern for us. And when it comes to our water utility, we have four major treatment facilities, three uh, wastewater treatment plants, and one drinking water treatment plant located on the tidal Delaware River. So all that infrastructure is potentially vulnerable to inundation from sea level rise and storm surge. Another big impact that we are evaluating currently, so a potential impact, is how sea level rise could influence water quality for us. So we get our drinking water from the Delaware River and also from the non-tidal portion of the Schuylkill River. And because, as I mentioned, we have a large drinking water treatment plant on the tidal Delaware River, we're concerned with the fact that sea level rise will push what is known as the salt front further upstream in the Delaware, closer to our drinking water intake. And the salt front is where the the salt water of the Delaware estuary and the ocean meet the fresh water of the Delaware River. And that kind of mixing zone can move forward or upstream in drought conditions, but also under sea level rise conditions. So if we start pulling in salty water, that is obviously a major risk. Traditional treatment processes do not remove salt. So we're really trying to get way in front of this issue, evaluate our risks, try and understand when the timing of of that potential salt front encroachment could occur and and what we really need to do to, to deal with that. And then lastly, I'll say in addition to surface flooding, we also have a lot of subsurface infrastructure along our tidal rivers, specifically our drainage system, which is... A gravity drainage system. So if we see inundation of our outfalls along the tidal portions of the river, our sewer system and drainage system has nowhere to drain water. So that will require adaptation strategies as well, maybe pumping infrastructure or other measures. But yeah, it really boils down to, to flooding and, and water quality for us.
0: So it sounds like some major infrastructure could potentially be really impacted. What about residential people? I mean, what about the areas where people are living? How are they kind of factoring in climate change? And is that kind of fall on your responsibility?
4: Yeah, well, you know, our primary responsibility in terms of the communities that are vulnerable to to flooding is to make sure that, you know, the the services we provide, the drainage system infrastructure that we build, operate, maintain is doing the best it can to, to manage storm events. And of course, there are limitations with how much infrastructure can really handle, especially when we're thinking about really extreme precipitation and flooding events. But there are strategies we're trying to use, like implementing Green stormwater infrastructure that manages stormwater at the source and, you know, reduces the strain on our drainage system to to really optimize how those systems function. But of course, yes, there are communities that are um, in areas of the city that are highly vulnerable to not just coastal flooding, but also riverine flooding and non-tidal portions of the city. So the creeks and streams that aren't influenced by tides and, and storm surge and sea level rise. And then, you know, localized flooding that occurs because our drainage system is so overwhelmed during extreme storm events. It's a citywide issue we need to tackle, the issue of flooding and how to ensure that our most vulnerable communities are seeing the mitigation strategies, you know, get implemented as soon as possible and are seeing future planning for their communities take into account climate change impacts like sea level rise and more extreme rainfall events. Addressing the community issues is a citywide effort. And we do have a citywide flood risk management task force that was Initiated back in 2015. So, shortly after the Water Department started our climate change adaptation program. And that's the forum through which we bring together city agencies. I think we have about 15 city agencies and departments represented on that task force today. We also work with state and federal partners through that task force. You know, we are really trying to improve our collaboration and coordination across city agencies to make sure that we are addressing flooding concerns throughout neighborhoods in our city.
0: What are you seeing different with, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about precipitation. Are you seeing increased rainfall in the last 10, 20 years? And how are you kind of factoring in any sort of increase that you see?
4: Yes, we are seeing more frequent, severe rainfall events. And precipitation is a bit tricky because there is so much natural variability in rainfall, especially in our area and our region. But, you know, I think anyone who's been in the Philadelphia area this summer or the past few summers can say that we are just experiencing a really large number of very extreme events, you know, higher or more extreme than what we call the 100-year event that has about a 1% chance of happening in any given year. So what that really, that's manifest, that's basically a, a product of climate change, a direct physical product of climate change, because as the atmosphere warms, it's able to hold more moisture. So we're seeing, you know, when rainfall events occur, they're just dumping more rain and it's very intense. What our department is looking at is we're trying to mainstream the use of of climate change projections in the planning and design of our infrastructure. And that includes our drainage systems the systems that handle the stormwater that falls and runs off during rain events. And so our climate change adaptation program specifically has developed a draft set of climate resilient planning and design guidance. It includes precipitation projections, as well as sea level rise and air temperature projections. And we're currently working with our planning and design engineers to update some of our standards that are used to build the infrastructure and renew and replace existing infrastructure that is dealing with stormwater flow.
0: Okay, you'd mentioned a little bit earlier about the working with other agencies within the city of Philadelphia, but I, I want to learn a m- bit more about that. So, is, is there good integration across the various departments? It, how, how has that process been? You've been around since 2014. Are there other adaptation sub departments? And let's say the transportation department, or are you the only department focused on adaptation?
4: Yes, I think we're fairly unique at the Water Department in that we have a small team dedicated specifically to climate adaptation. You know, that isn't the same at other city agencies across the city. But of course, we do have an Office of Sustainability, and the city recently hired a chief resiliency officer. So they are close partners for us when it comes to bringing the information that we're generating for the Water Department. To city partners and seeing if that information can be used to inform initiatives that are happening through, say, the flood risk management task force or other groups that are made up of multiple city agencies and and tackling cross cutting issues. You know, I think when I talk about the positives of climate change, because that's you know that's hard to do and. It can be easy to just get really in a negative headspace about all the challenges we're facing. But one of the positives is that it is such a cross cutting issue. So it is forcing city agencies and departments to really break out of our silos and collaborate in ways that we haven't done in the past. So, you know, just having conversations about not only the risks we're facing as a city that will impact all different agencies and utilities and communities, but also how we can better coordinate to leverage resources to make sure that the strategies we are coming up with and implementing really have as much of a positive impact as possible, as opposed to maybe addressing just you know the needs or risks related to one agency or one program. So that cool. is a silver lining of all this.
0: Well, to the credit of Philadelphia, that was very clever because sometimes, you know, these organizations <laughs> or cities or whatever, they'll create a department of climate change and a lot of times they get ignored, but they embedded you in the water department and you don't get much more important than the water department for cities. You know, it's just, it's at the center of everything. Mm-hmm. That was very clever, very clever approach to like <laughs> adaptation into the to space. People cannot, you know, ignore the, the water department. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about community engagement. I don't know if it's a responsibility of you, but you've talked about how residents, you know, how are they going to be impacted by climate change? But a lot of times they don't even realize that you're doing what you're doing and there's this broader approach to climate change within the city. It's just sort of happening behind the scenes. Is there a lot of engaging the community on what you're doing?
4: Yeah, I, I will say the community engagement has not been a focus of, of our program. We are a very small. Team, So we have really been in the weeds with the climate science and using the science to create actionable tools and guidance materials for the department. But we have closely collaborated and shared the information we're generating with the Philadelphia Water Department's Public Affairs Unit. So we have a very large, excellent team of staff that is regularly engaged with communities across the city. And we're basically arming them with the information related to climate change that we want communities to be aware of. And we're also doing the same thing through the Flood Risk Management um, Task Force, And a lot of community engagement, you know, it's not just happening through the water department. We, You know, we play a huge role in that, but it's also happening through these cross-cutting task forces like the Flood Risk Management Task Force. And they've produced educational materials that are distributed to communities. I know we've produced a guide to flooding in Philadelphia that has neighborhood-specific materials for areas throughout Philadelphia that have really been hardest hit by different types of flooding. So neighborhoods like Germantown and Eastwick. And we're also working with community members to create community-led flooding stakeholder groups. We have a newly formed Germantown Community Flood Risk Management Task Force. So, you know, there is really this recognition that we need to be collaborating and talking with community members through the entire planning process. So when we're identifying the risks, but also when we are developing strategies to reduce those risks and then, you know, moving towards implementation during all those phases, we need to be engaging with community members. And I think that's just an area that we continue to try and improve on as, you know, a water utility and also as a, as a city as a whole.
0: So you've been doing adaptation there in Philadelphia for quite a while compared to a lot of cities. What resources, I mean, what networks do you, I and mean, even personally adaptation is this emerging field. How do you kind of keep abreast of what's out there? And yet tell us, I guess, some of your tools and secrets in that way.
4: Yeah, that's a great question and it's something that's really a challenge for a small team like ours and also really exciting. The fact that that is this is an emerging field and, you know, there's a there are a lot of tools and resources out there. So, immediately what comes to mind are tools and resources related to to data and global climate model projections because science really forms the foundation of all of the work that we do. So, we lean heavily on agencies like NOAA or, you know, the Bureau of Reclamation that has released things like statistically downscaled global climate model projections. It's really those federal agencies and scientific experts that, again, create the information that forms the foundation of of everything that we do. And then, of course, once we have the science and, you know, get it to a point where it's actionable, there are so many other questions we're dealing with. And just the whole process of making sure science can be effectively applied to the planning questions we're trying to answer is just it's, it's a whole challenging space in and of itself. So in that regard, we've really tried to reach out as much as we can to peer utilities and cities. One of the most effective and rewarding networks for us so far has been our participation in the Water Utility Climate Alliance, or WUCA, which is a national network of 12 of the nation's largest water providers. We're one of their newer members, but we have just learned a lot from being a part of that network, and we are able to participate in a range of different adaptation research projects and trainings and All kinds of things that, that really help move the ball forward on climate adaptation in the water sector. And then, you know, there are international groups like C40 that we engage with in certain capacities to move beyond just, you know, understanding what's happening um, in our country, but seeing what other countries and cities around the world are doing to address a lot of these, these climate related challenges. So it's really, you know, it's all different layers. It's related to the data and the science. Our engagement and the tools and resources we look to are related to you know, our peer cities and utilities in our country, and also what's happening internationally. Yeah, I think <laughs> there's a lot out there. So, so what can get challenging is, is trying to sort through all the, the great tools and resources available to see what's really most relevant and helpful for the work that we do. But you know, it's it's also just just really exciting to see that so many people and groups and organizations are engaged in this field and really trying to, to move the ball forward.
0: Okay, last question. I asked this of all my guests. If you could recommend one person to come on this podcast, who would it be?
4: Someone who immediately comes to mind for me is Catherine Hayho. I don't know if you've had her on your podcast, but um, once before. Once I before, yeah, she's good. <laughs> yeah. I saw her speak in Austin actually at a water utility climate alliance meeting several years ago. And just the the way in which she was able to boil down and communicate on, you know, really complex climate science topics i thought was really amazing.
0: Nope, that's good. <laughs> I can always I've had repeat guests so that she's a good one. Okay, Julia, this has been great. Very excited on what Philadelphia is doing in this adaptation space and thanks for what you're doing and thanks for coming on.
4: Great. Thanks Doug and thanks for everything you do and and all the communications and outreach that you're you're making happen through your podcast.
0: Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Carolyn Kouski, John Miller, Reese May, and Julia Rockwell for joining the show. We are seeing increased flooding out there. Climate change is making these flooding events worse. How are communities going to respond to these escalating threats? How can communities maintain their financial stability when responding to these threats? This was a first in a two-part series that hopes to answer those questions. In the next episode, we hear from Rob Moore of the Natural Resources Defense Council, Samantha Medlock, Senior Counsel on the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis in the U.S. Congress, Joe Rossi, the Flood Specialist for Rogers Gray Insurance, Josh Lippert, Floodplain Manager for the City of Philadelphia, and of course, returning to thread all these conversations together is Dr. Carolyn Kuski. We'll dig deeper into the types of solutions out there on flood risk and financial resilience. Stay tuned for that important conclusion to this two-part series. I would like to take a moment to thank Carolyn at the Warren Risk Center for sponsoring this episode. And special thanks to Zoe linder Baptie, the Communication and Engagement Coordinator at the Risk Center. Zoe has been invaluable in helping get this episode together. Thanks, Zoe. And thanks again for the generous support from the Delaware Valley Regional Planning Commission through the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's Coastal Zone Management Program for funding the grant that led to this series. Okay, some final housekeeping. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, consider sponsoring a whole podcast episode of Apps. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. So, for example, UCLA sponsored me to do several episodes around adaptation in California. At the time, I traveled on location to interview experts they wanted me to include. Usually, those episodes have quite a few expert guests. So basically, they are sponsoring an entire episode to share their particular story. I've done with various groups like the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School for this episode, World Wildlife Fund, Harvard, University of Florida, and some other nonprofits. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. So reach out. I'm at at gmail.com if you want to learn more. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, reach out. Folks, I speak a lot and you will enjoy this. I've been doing some keynote presentations and they are a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in working in the adaptation space. I will talk about adaptation and ways that will motivate and inspire you. You can contact me at the website, AmericaAdapts.org. Okay, on that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. You guys here, I hear from my listeners. They say, Doug, you said it. So I reached out. Please take the time to email me. Let me know how you get value out of the podcast. Let's see if you have some ideas for the podcast. And if you work in the space, I love hearing what you guys do. That's very helpful to me and how the content that I'm putting on the podcast might be helpful to you. Take the time. I'm at gmail.com. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.